We are in Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 9. So in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, we're continuing down this rabbit trail that Paul has veered off into, and he's been praying for uh, the Ephesians. He's been sharing with them about why he's a prisoner, and so while he's on the topic of being a prisoner, he's there because of his mission and ministry of being a Gentile, and so he's veered off, and one of the things he wants to do then is explain to them what it is that he does. What is it that Paul does as a minister of the gospel? What does that mean? And so he's, he's gone off in this little three-verse section of explaining what it means, to, from his own words, of what a, a minister of the gospel is. So turn your attention to the reading of God's word from Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of your word. You say that your word is a rock, is a hammer that smashes rocks into pieces. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light upon our path. Lord, your word is a, a sharpened, living, active word. It is powerful. May it reach to our hearts today. May it minister and give us what we need. Not what we think we need, but what we actually need to bring us into more obedience, to bring us into a more faith, to, to spurn us towards growing in holiness and love. We ask all these things through the power of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, I kind of alluded to this as I was putting us in perspective here of where we are, but I'm sure when you get older, we've all experienced, you know, you meet new people, and one of the you know, we get boring as we get older. So, you know, we don't just say what's ever on our, on our minds like children. So we, we always bring up, you know, well, what do you do, right? Tell me a bit more about you. What do you do for a living? Now, if you're a minister, that's always like kind of tricky. In fact, in seminary, sometimes they'll even, depending on the, the professor of, at the class or different pastors who have had lots of experience, some of them will even say, don't say you're a pastor because you're going to be in for an earful, either because you're going to hear about somebody who, you know, just absolutely hates the church, or, and so far this has been my experience, you're going to hear everyone's deepest, darkest sins while you're just trying to fly on a plane towards, you know, a vacation or a destination. When my brother uh, was getting married and he asked me to participate in part of the ceremony, uh, and we went out for his bachelor party, I had every dude in this uh, the groomsmen come to me with some thing, some theological question, moral question, whatever, because I was, I was a minister. This is what you do, right? But ministers also have this thing of, do they do actually that much? Now, we, we know our situation is I'm bivocational, so you know I'd work in Tuscaloosa you know, the entire week. But you have a church, the pastor, all you see him maybe is on Sunday, what does he do during the rest of the week? Eugene Peterson, one of the great authors uh, and pastors, said that when he was ministering in Maryland, 
he would get home, he would leave for church and his neighbor would usually be out in the yard. And if he came back, sometimes the neighbor would still be in the yard. And as he would be getting out and going into his house, the neighbor would be like, that must be nice being done for, you know, the week, huh? You show up next Sunday and that, that's all you need to do. Ministers do a lot more. But they don't do anything more important than what they do on Sundays. Ministers are supposed to be shepherds, meeting with people, caring for needs, praying. I mean, as I've gone through Ephesians and I've seen it modeled, and we're going to continue to see it modeled, Paul is constantly praying. Jesus, when he was ministering, if he is the pinnacle and best example of what a minister is, he is constantly at prayer. But the most important thing either Jesus did or Paul is doing is preaching the gospel. So that's what Paul here is shaping, you know, the Ephesians' minds around. This is what, you want to know what a minister does? You want to know what a minister does who lands in jail because he loves you? This is what he does. This is what he looks like. This is who he is. And one of the first things he says is that a minister is one who has experienced the power of grace, right? At the beginning of verse 7, he says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So two things to kind of just pull out of there. First of all is, to hear the word minister is servant. It's where we get our word for deacon. He is a, he's a servant. I was made a servant for God's people. And the second thing is the emphasis. Who made him a servant? Who made him a minister? Well, it wasn't Paul. It's, it's passive. I was made. There was a work that was done in my life, Ephesians, that so radically changed me, called me from whom I once was to who I am now, and made me this minister of the gospel. I, there, when you're going through ministry, when you're going to ordination, you have to talk about yourself a lot because we want to know the story of what God has done in your life. And we had this just at our last presbytery meeting. We had two young men who are coming, beginning the phases of ordination. We call it coming under care. And they share with us, and one of the two questions that they have to answer, it's the easiest part of their exams, tell us about how you became a Christian and tell us about your call to ministry. And within the call to ministry, the two things that we look for is you have the internal call and the external call. And almost always, a man starts wanting to be a minister because something inside him is either disturbed or drawn out or is being pulled upon. And I mean that word disturbed, literally. I've had tons of friends say, you know, something that it almost is a disturbing thing because they get a call when they're going in one particular direction in life. They were going to be a lawyer. They were going to be an accountant. They were going to be doing something else. They got involved in a college ministry. They were asked to do a Bible study. And then all of a sudden, they cannot shake this feeling of, hey, I was discipling someone, and you know, the Lord used me to help them grow in their faith. Or the Lord used me to preach the gospel to them, and they're now a Christian because of me, because of my poor efforts. But God did this work through me, and it disturbs them because now they're like, I may want to go to ministry, but I had this other whole life plan. But it's God who starts that work inside of them and makes them that, have that desire. And the external call is just the church recognizing it. It's recognizing that a man's stepping up and leading in Bible studies or 
uh, for deacons for serving. You know, one of the ways in churches most of the time you decide on who to nominate for a deacon or an elder is the guys that are already doing the work of being a deacon or an elder, the ones that, you know, come here and change light bulbs, the ones that, that get here hours before you all do to turn on the air conditioning or check on the, all those works, those are the guys that just step up. Those are the ones you want. <laughs> those are the ones you recognize. That's the external call. But it is God who does the work, who made him a minister. And he has this experience of radical grace. He emphasizes this twice in verse 7 and verse 8. He says, God's grace which was given me. And then in verse 8, he says, this grace was given me. He was given grace to serve. A minister cannot minister without it. We, we need it for ourselves daily because hopefully we are constantly aware of how we're failing. I don't mean that we're constantly thinking we're failures, but we are aware of how we could be doing more. We need grace then to for forgiveness, for not beating ourselves up, and grace to see, all right, now that I'm aware of where I could be serving or what I could be doing, how do I actually execute it? How do I move forward to live as faithfully and as obediently to the call that God has placed on my life? But this givenness, this grace that Paul's received, it's not just salvation. It's the grace to do the job, the grace to be loving to others, the grace to deal with controversies in the church, the grace and, and power to stand up boldly when he's being persecuted. And this givingness, this givingness of grace to the benefit of the church doesn't just rest with the minister. When we get to Ephesians 4, we see Paul use the same language of the Lord giving his church blessings by providing pastors, shepherds, teachers, prophets, all these people gifted for the church. And the language there is the gifts are the members. And the goal is to equip members in the ministry of the church. If we are going to, if you're going to have a man experience grace and be your, your minister, he's going to bring that out of you all too. Preaching the gospel and instructing you so that you will be equipped to do all that God has asked you to when you leave here. Because one of his primary tasks is to preach and equip you to then go out. This is one of the things that happens when you're in ministry, especially uh, when you're not a church planter or maybe don't have a call for evangelism. But the pastor's concern is for the church that the Lord's brought him. So he doesn't get to go out as much and evangelize. He doesn't get to meet as many non-believers as the rest of the people under his care. And so he equips them. He gives them graces to grow so that they can be on message and on mission out where the Lord has called them. But one of the other things that Paul has, has grown in here and is a, a big change is humility. Paul said in his letter to the Philippians, and he was speaking in a sense of the way he used to be, but this is the way he used to be before he had been given this grace. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Paul went from that view of himself 
that view of his ministry, one of just absolute perfection, one of absolute law-keeping, of rule-abiding, of anyone that's breaking, a, you know, stepping a toe out of line just gets smushed. He hated the church because he thought they were all people rebelling against God's law. And so he didn't take a meek and mild approach. He didn't take a, let's have a conversation about the law and what's going on. He just said, how about we just kill them? That would solve the problem. He went from that, all law, zero grace, to Ephesians 3.8. This is how, listen to how he describes himself. And remember, he is chained next to two Roman guards while writing this. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. He has no more boasting. He's got zero credentials, nothing to show for himself. It is all grace. And now he doesn't view himself as somebody who's mighty and powerful, and you need to listen to him because of all of his credentials. He is the least of the saints, not even apostles. I mean, he had a fight for his, even his authority that the apostles recognized, the big ones, the original men. He had to fight for that as he kept going to minister to these churches who kept constantly were belittling his ministry. And he's not saying, I'm, you know, one of the least of the apostles. He says that in other letters. He's saying, I'm one of the least of the saints. That's why he also says in Philippians 2, not to do anything out of vain conceit or selfish ambition, but hold others more significant than yourselves. He is moving himself lower and lower on the totem pole so that he can lift higher and higher the people he has called to care for. The only way he can do that is because he's experienced the power of grace. But a minister has not been one that just experiences the power of grace. A minister is, above all, a preacher. In verse 8, he is given grace. He says, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Why did he receive the grace? It was a gift to preach, to be out planting churches, preaching the gospel, going to communities, uh, and announcing the resurrection, the, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus Christ to all the Gentiles. That's who his heart was for. That's who he was set apart to work for. So what is not here? There's a whole bunch of things. He says, I was given grace to preach to the Gentiles. Does not say, I was given grace to be a community organizer. I was given grace to solve the poverty in Ephesus. I was given grace to stand up to the political systems of oppression. He was not given grace to be a partisan, to drum up votes for the local person who would do best for them. He's not given grace to be a welfare specialist, economic professor, or a psychologist. He's given grace to preach. A good sign that you should stop listening to a preacher is when every sermon starts sounding the same. And usually it is just fixing the world's problems is the task of the church. Or just even, we'll go eventually another way, because that's just all political stuff. There's a danger of moralizing the gospel constantly. Just do this to be better. Or here's seven tips on how to have a healthy marriage or financial. All those things can be good, but when it becomes always 
this call to moralism or even sounding very religious all the time. That too is not the task. The task is to preach the gospel. That is what a minister is called to do. And we've seen in the church history issues of us not doing that as a church and as ministers. In the early 20th century, uh, a movement was started called the Social Gospel by Walter Rausenbusch. It downplayed theological orthodoxy in favor of the church taking a more active role in solving society's issues. Now, the movements changed names over the years. Some people still call it the social gospel. It kind of got absorbed in mainline liberal Protestantisms, but it's, it's still alive and active. And I saw a tweet just today of a popular liberal Christian minister who is increasingly being popular amongst evangelical ministers and lay people. And the tweet read this, imagine if, if Christians pursued dismantling systems of poverty, barriers to health care, demanded livable wages, paid family leave, affordable child care, and ruthlessly advocated for women's rights with the same passion so many of us pursue in trying to make abortion illegal. Compare that to anything you've read in scripture regarding what a Christian is to pursue. Now some of these areas overlap, right? The early church was active in trying to eliminate abortion. Back then, they would just abandon children. We have reports of Christians going through trash heaps in Rome, picking out the cries of babies and gathering them up and raising them. But all of those were not the gospel. They were consequences of the gospel. They were consequences from people hearing the preaching of God's word. God calls us to justice. God calls us to do acts of mercy and ministry. That's the equipping of the saints. But the way you get equipped is to sit under the preaching of the word of God that talks about the change in your life to do those things. It is not that you just all of a sudden want to be a do-gooder. It is that you are all of a sudden reminded, told, informed maybe for the first time that you are a sinner who has been saved by grace. And this grace now takes root in your life and produces love, patience, kindness, goodness, mercy. So then go out and do mercy. Go out and do love. But you don't ever get to do all those things and then just get rid of any other sense of the spiritual things that we are constantly called to do. Dying to sin, pursuing holiness. Not always preaching morals, but being moral according to what God has commanded in Scripture. Not being a thief, not being a glutton, not being a slanderer, a gossip, an alcoholic. Those are things that we are supposed to call attention to, not to rub people's noses in it, because, but to call their attention to the fact that those are sins that God, a holy God, calls sins. And here's the good thing. You don't have to stay there. There is grace to change you. The primary task of preaching, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the primary task of the church and of the Christian message is the preaching of the word of God. Not politics, not morality, but Christ and him crucified. When I was serving in the Episcopal Church, I actually experienced a lesson in this because I used an illustration from a politician. I think I've shared this before. I didn't think I was intentionally not trying to mock the politician or anything like that, but he said something that I thought was really good for my sermon, and so I just quoted him. I didn't say anything negative about him or whatever. Well, two weeks later, a woman came up to me after the service, and she said, I just have to let you know, your sermon last Sunday, and she kind of, 
she kind of gave, threw a curve at me. She was smiling and looked very much like she was about to encourage me. She goes, your sermon last Sunday was horrible. She goes, I can't believe you played politics from the pulpit. I can't believe you said that about that man. And she was very, very, very angry. And so I, you know, apologized and I realized then, like, maybe I should just avoid naming politicians, which is why I have not named him this time, because I learned my lesson. We don't want to sully pulpits by dragging everything else from the world into this, what's happening here and now. It's too sacred. It's also the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. Monday through Saturday, I can turn on the news and I can hear about all the politics. Monday through Saturday, I can be overwhelmed by inflation. Monday through Saturday, I can be upset about whatever party I disagree with doing whatever nonsense. Monday through Saturday, those are their concerns. Sunday is God's. And if we come to churches where all we're reminded about is the cares of Monday through Saturday, we don't get to rest we don't get grace. We don't get mercy. We just get TED Talks and NPR segments about what we already know and are threatened about and anxious about. The task of preaching is to provide grace or to provide hearing. Maybe the, the things that have been bugging you Monday through Saturday, but hearing them from the Bible and a Christian worldview of how to handle what's going on out there. And then to equip you with that's the way I should be thinking about this. So then Monday through Saturday, you can go at it again and then come back here and rest on Sunday. The, the third and final description he gives of a minister, he is one who has experienced grace. He is a preacher. He's not only a preacher, but his primary task is to be a preacher. And, he is a, and a minister is a witness. Look at verse 9 with me. He says, And to bring light for everyone... What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? In the beginning of John's gospel, we read this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now, in verse 8, he says, I was given grace to preach to the Gentiles. And then in verse 9, he says, and to bring light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for, uh, for in the ages? Remember, he's trying to reconcile and bring together two groups that hated each other. Jews and Gentiles are now one body, one people. There is no longer, and not only are you one people, the Gentiles, they're not second rate. They're not an afterthought. They are on equal footing with the Jews at the foot of Christ's cross. He wanted all of them. And so in this turning, he's turning back to the Jews. This light, this gospel, this mystery hidden for the ages that now includes these Gentiles I'm called to preach to, it still includes you. I still love you. I am one of you. Remember, he was the tribe of Israel, son of Benjamin. Paul is saying that we, you need to be with us in this. This is a light to open your eyes to the beauty that there's no more strangers and aliens in God's family. There's no more courtyards separating people just because of the, their birth. They are now adopted into God's family, not because of what they do, but because of what Christ has done. 
but this touches on his life. Now, there's a famous quote, you're probably familiar with it. It usually gets attributed to Francis of Assisi. I think I remember that that may not even be right, but it goes something like this. Preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. Somebody nod their head, so I know they've heard this. Okay. That sounds really great. But we just saw Paul's primary task, a minister's primary task, is to preach. In Romans 10, the main concern is preaching to people. How are they going to know the gospel if they don't hear? How are they going to hear if we don't send people to preach? Preach the gospel verbally, out loud, when you encounter people who don't know Jesus Christ. But then live what you preach. Be a light. Be an example in your actions, in the way that you live out your life. When we get to talking about elders and their responsibilities and, their, and the way we examine them. In 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications for an elder are predominantly, entirely character. What is the quality of the man's heart who is coming before you for this office? What is the quality of our hearts as we are empowered and equipped to preach the gospel as we are out amongst other people and everyone? And Paul lived this out. If you remember in Galatians 2, he shares that when Paul was serving alongside Peter, before a contingent for Jerusalem that were way more into being Judaizers, before they showed up, Peter is living life with the Gentiles. He eats with them, he hangs out with them, he stays in their homes, he has no issue with them. And the second, the Jews from Jerusalem come up, who are Jewish believers in Christ, when they come up and they start to you know, point out, right, you're, you're sitting with the Greeks? You're sitting with, with those barbarians? You know, no, no, we gotta, we gotta separate this. And so Peter goes and sits at the other table where the, already the body was segregating itself. And Paul says, this isn't gonna stand. And he confronts Peter, he says, to his face, in front of everyone, publicly, calling it out. Because Paul practiced what he preached. If he is going to preach that Jew and Gentile get to be together, then he's going to eat with Gentiles. He's going to serve with Gentiles. He will go to prison for Gentiles. His life will be a witness to all that will further give power and uh, credibility to his preaching. We've seen a lot over the past, if you've grown up in the church, I feel like this seasons wane and and rise, but we have seen tons of men fail. Whether it's moral failures, some of it, uh, one of the the sadder things I think that's been happening since I've come into ministry is several men being disqualified because of the way they lead. They They didn't cheat on their wives. Okay, that's good. They didn't swindle money from the, from the church pocketbook. That, that, that's good. But they're tyrants. They're brutal. They, they have you know, the resignations of all of their staff already written out so that at any time they can just get rid of them. That, that doesn't line up with the qualifications of what an elder is supposed to be. Bold, but not uh, abusive. A minister is one who has experienced the radical power of God's grace, and who counts everyone else around them more significant than themselves. That's that's modeled here for Paul. 
that's modeled for us in other ministers that I hope you've had a chance to meet. I One of the pastors that I pretty much grew up underneath just retired. He is, to me, different strain of, of evangelicalism, but to me, the what I think of when I think of a faithful pastor, served for 30 years at one church, avoided bad scandals, made bad calls and owned them, made good calls and let other people own them, preached faithfully for 30 years in New York. Preaching sermons like this for me are kind of hard because I don't know what I want you to take away from it, other than that you need to hear and see the examples in scripture of what a good pastor is, because I won't always be your pastor. Either you're going to go off to college, or you're going to go move, or whatever. But whenever you arrive at a church, look for these parts of Scripture that says this is what a pastor is. And from somebody that is the pastor of pastors, every guy wants to model his ministry on Paul. So is he? You can ask him that. Ask him how he approaches ministry. How does he view the ministry? Is it one of grace that draws him to humility, that convicts him to preach always? the whole truth of God's inspired word. Let's pray. Father, that, may, they, may that be our uh, heart's desire as we move places or are called other places, that we would constantly be searching out churches that faithfully preach your word. I, we thank you, Lord, that uh, I hope from even my ministry that whatever failings I do in the pulpit that I point this congregation always to your word so that they can see and hear the goodness of it so that they can see and hear the instruction of it and learn and grow father bless all of them as they go out here into Monday into the week that they would feel rest that they would feel equipped that they would feel ready to face the world and be lights in the midst of darkness, that they would be lights of your gospel and preach and proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. In his glorious name we pray. Amen.